0: Welcome, Raz. How are you doing?
1: No, I'm pretty good. Thanks. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm all right. Uh, welcome, everyone, to Classic Amateurs Podcast. This is the working title. We might change. We might not. <laughs> I like it.
1: Good enough. Good enough. Yeah, yeah.
0: Last week, we talked about fear and loading in Las Vegas. And before that, Dostoevsky. And this week, what are we talking about, Raz?
1: Well, I was thinking uh, we spend some time talking about a different type of classic. Um, you know, okay. often we, we think of classics are I think one one definition that I've heard of classic is a book that is worth rereading, or it remains maintains value beyond the time that it was written, right? And uh, the the book that I was thinking about today was um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Okay. Have you ever heard of uh, the book or the author?
0: I vaguely remember hearing his name. I have no idea what it is, but I'm very excited to learn.
1: Peter Peter Thiel is a very fascinating guy, to me. To me, I, I genuinely, I'm genuinely fascinated with him. So he's um he's the Stanford uh, grad. He's uh, I think he was born in Germany and then emigrated um, to the US when he was one. Uh, very much a San, Fris- San Francisco area type of person. Um, was the co-founder of paypal which is the by definition one of the earliest fintechs i think they started off with the vision of creating a online currency the bitcoin of the days of the 90s yeah and they repivoted eventually to thinking more of online payments that work through email so that yes, was with, uh, Elon? that's when he was in a competition with elon and then in collaboration with elon they started off at different companies and they kind of merged that's where the motto competition is for suckers comes into play i'll talk about it <laughs> in, sure, later sure. on and then yeah um, is,
0: this, there... is this like a steve jobs and bill gates situation
1: in a way because i think bill gates ended up uh, getting on the board of apple and co-investing when apple was at its worst so yeah if that's yeah. what you mean yeah, are definitely and I, I still struggle to understand that episode but uh, it played out pretty well for both of them then, uh, so Peter Thiel was um, after he had this big break. He, I think, he was one of the earliest investor in Facebook. So he he had a huge uh, win with that. And then he he stayed. He's mainly a venture capitalist now, and he is the founder of Palantir, which is one of those uh, iconic uh, stocks Palantir. you hear about on social media. Do a lot of government work. Uh, I I know both. people
0: working for Palantir.
1: That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah so they use kind of data, but as well as they do believe kind of in the combination of um, of uh, data analytics, AI, and also maintaining kind of a human sovereignty over decision making, that combination between man and machine as being the optimal way of um, of getting to insights and and decisions. Um, the, the, what was also striking to me about Peter Theo is that he's He's a contrarian for many reasons so he's kind of the only conservative was the only conservative person in in, a, in a silicon valley which you might have might be aware is very much um a democratic left-wing type of um population <clears throat> and he was one of the guys that was campaigning for trump early on he was like i'm, I'm Proud to be gay. He's also gay. I'm proud to be gay, and proud to be a conservative was his uh, kind of, a, <laughs> sort of the way he was leading the speeches, which is very you know surprising um, at the time. Um, Interesting kind of, vision. Yeah, especially yeah, combining the two, which seem kind of um, opposites. And uh, no, just really, really, really decent guy from what I've seen. Um, very kind of a polymath. Uh, strong interest in philosophy and religion as well, which comes through this book as well, which is basically a business book. Um, yeah. But there, it has a very, very strong, clearly strong foundation in, in what he's been uh, reading and um, and um, kind of uh, distilling in his own thinking. And uh, well, the reason I wanted to discuss it, I think it's a classic is, um, you know, I, I think it stands the test of time. And there's some interesting things about it that I wanted to test with you that um to prove that effectively. Is it still worth, I think it's still worth reading it. I read it a few months ago and I absolutely enjoy it. I enjoy rereading it. And, um, cool. I think why don't we just dive right into it? sorry. Did you want to say anything? About-
0: well, I, I, if, if I'm the test of time in this case, I hope I don't, I don't, I don't fail it at my test <laughs> or I don't feel at the test. I don't know. Who are we testing here? The book or me?
1: So, um, I think the the basic framework of this book, this book is effectively a note on startups and how to build uh, innovation, how to build companies, which is very, very interesting to us, right? I mean, every time you start a new endeavor, you kind of have to work through why you're doing it and what are you trying to solve, what problems you're trying to solve with it. Even if it's just for yourself at the beginning, and then maybe for others, just like when you're doing a podcast, why are we doing this? Something about classical amateurs. Uh, what this, is about the saga. this is it. <laughs> why would even start having this conversation about something um, such as classics and um, you know uh, why why uh, why are we fascinated with classics? I think to understand a little bit the way he's thinking, I wanted to test with you the way he sometimes thinks about what is the best interview question, which is. Um, what, what, uh, the way he asked the question is more like what fundamental truths, and this is a question for you now, Norm, what fundamental truths do you, uh, do you believe that very few people would agree with you on? Can you name one, at least one thing where you think not a lot of people agree with you, but you, you definitely believe it's true.
0: Wow. That's a tough one. Okay yeah, I thought you were gonna ask me what my favorite color is. so I was like so excited, but now I'm like shit, we are going deep. All right, so but that's, the, that's a contrarian
1: things. question. I mean, if the point of asking this question while I give you time to think about it is then if you want to start something, usually you have to be uh, equipped with something that no one else knows. It's kind of the the essence is the secret, the secret what What is the thing that you know? better than than very few people would otherwise be aware of which is kind of the essence of individualism to, to some extent what is it that is truly your own that no one else can can have access to or or even is even aware of
0: okay this this introduced some complexity to the question but no but let's go I'm back just...
1: to just the truth something that you you believe that if you told maybe me or your partner maybe she she or you know I wouldn't agree with but you definitely okay. think it's true
0: Okay. So one thing I believe it's true. And I met a lot of people who don't agree is that everyone needs what I call a fuck around time. The idea that you can, you know, work eight hours a day, maybe sleep seven, eight, nine hours a day. But then in between, there's a time when you're just unable to be productive when your brain is just fried. Because when you look at like management books, or you look at even like, I guess, self-help books, they often say like, you gotta, or they often imply that you are building a new life that's all productive, always creating something every moment you spend, you spend with building something new for yourself or for others. But in my opinion, as good as it sounds, everyone needs fuck around time when you just, Useless when you just sit and stare in the distance, or I don't know, you watch a silly movie or that sort of stuff. And you should just accept it. That's my, I guess. I,
1: is it it. If I, I, I like now that you mention it. I, I agree with you on both things. I think most people are unaware or believe think in that terms. Now that you've mentioned it, I like it. See, that's the revelation. I agree with you. I think, um, to some extent, this is fuck around time. It's kind of unstructured. Uh, we put put a placeholder and then we kind of let it loose. Uh, I've seen a TED talk that talked about the power of procrastination. You are actually coming up with new things when you're not doing anything. And sure. sometimes you need that to come up with an answer. Like kids would often procrastinate until uh, the due date of their essay, right? Because they're actually thinking in the background while they're doing other things. They're trying to figure out an answer. That's very common with, with kids and even with us. And the more problems become more and more complex, you kind of need that buffer for your brain to process silently in the background to sleep on it to whatever, until you come up with, with the, with the right idea. I think that's amazing, valuable, mentally valuable.
0: I guess just one more thing. And then I'll let you talk about this because obviously this shouldn't be the focus is that the the reason I came up with fuck around time is because I know quite a few people who said, you know, I was planning to do all these things, all these X, Y, Z stuff that I, I was, I really wanted to work on, you know, I had this vision, I was going to read the books or I wanted to build a new thing at home, but I just didn't have time. I couldn't help myself. I was just sitting there and not doing anything and I said, look, you shouldn't feel bad. It's just fuck around time, all right. but go for it.
1: No, I absolutely love it. So That's that's the type of thinking that he's promoting in, in, in this yeah. book. Um, go back to kind of what is truly, truly. Um, so your own, you know, truly unique. And then he, he kind of uses this framework coming back to the companies, right? Once the companies are built around the idea of secrets, that, as you say, you know something that other people don't realize, right? Whether it's like Airbnb that... Um, um, some guys also realized, realize, look, everyone's have, has this room in their in their apartment, you know, big American houses, or Australian houses. You can just put a mattress in there and rent it out when there's high demand for at a conference or something, because demand can be quite volatility for accommodation, and hotels can't mm-hmm. really match that. And uh, those guys kind of saw something that worked that no one else believed in for a very long time, and then eventually with the help of some early promoters, they managed to, to get that off the ground. Anyway, it's just and it kind of every idea is the same, right? Facebook, the idea that, uh, okay, social media matters, right? And a lot of people tried all sorts of social media platforms, but never with true identity. You could always be kind of a horse or an avatar or something. And ultimately when they actually started small with, um, with Harvard students, where they actually put their faces and real identity, that's when it actually took off and, and spread everywhere. Realizing the key being personal identity matters, and 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 kind of matters at the core, right, of uh, adoption more than anywhere, and then it spreads out pretty well. Um, and, and kind of every every idea starts the same way. But um, I think starting off with a bit of context, the reason why he's approaching this book, he has this sort of the zero to one the way he thinks about it is kind of binary. So as just for context, when he thinks about a business, he thinks in terms of two axes. One is the the vertical axis, which is um, effectively um, how new, whether it's new or not, whether it's truly innovative. Technology by definition is defined as doing um, kind of uh, more with less, right? Uh, On one, one axis and on the other one, that's the zero to one thing. That's the true innovation. And then the other one is effectively more copying across. So when you think about innovation, you know, Silicon Valley is the zero to one space where new things happen. And then the one to n uh, horizontal axis is copying. It's effectively China. China doesn't really uh, come up with new things, but it's amazingly good at copying and scaling things that already exist in the West and it's catching up. So his, his main concern was, Look, actually, um, we live in a situation where we talk a lot about um, the developing world and the developed world, and a lot of the growth in the world is happening in China and everywhere. But it's not true innovation. It's not on the vertical axis. It's just a scaling of things that are already happening in the West. So his main uh, context and, and premise for the book was uh, there's been a lot of innovation in uh, in the world, but a lot of it in the world of, of bits in, in Western Europe, not so much in anything else. Whereas the, in the rest of the world, everyone's catching up with the developed world. So what is the true growth story for the developed world? Actually, he's arguing that we live, and that's the contrarian idea, we live in a world of stagnation. And it's very provocative to think that we live in a world of stagnation, but then he brings, uh, also for context, a few things that might support that idea, um, for instance, you know, if you, it's, it's, we're in the age of stagnation compared to the '60s when everybody was imagining the Jetsons, flying cars. Now we can't even do autonomous vehicles well yet, although there's a lot of buzz around that. Back in the '60s, right, we we had very little technology where you, you could put people on the moon, whereas we actually haven't been very successful at scaling that, and we've gone back on that quite a bit. So there's been a lot of innovation in the world of atoms. How uh, in, the, in the world of bits, how information travels? We've been extremely effective of that, but we're very actually uh, reductionist or regressive in other forms of innovation. The world of atoms, manufacturing, energy. Energy hasn't become cheaper effectively, despite you know solar. Solar is still more expensive than than oil, and oil itself despite everything, despite the inflation, everything is still at a higher level than it used to be in the 60s from a price perspective. We're still a very energy-intensive society. And if China and India copy that, right, that's the one to n uh, factor, there's no real efficiency, right? There's just more and more of the same and ultimately yeah. it leads to zero-sum games. It, without without true innovation on the zero-to-one axis, you're actually faced ultimately with Right, what you see emerging today, which is the conflict between West and China, because China is kind of slowing down as they've kind of copied almost everything. They're arriving at a level where um, there's no more much more growth, and there's no. If you don't have growth and technological growth, there's no incentive to to just kind of focus on yourself, uh, have a competitive advantage, um, and then maybe trade works. Because if you are all kind of at parity. Uh, and you, trade stops working the same way. You're actually conf- uh, in a conflict for resources pretty quickly. Uh, this is all just for context. Why he wrote the business book, yeah, yeah. but I find that fascinating. Uh-huh.
0: I see. You know, yeah, it used to be this um, running joke, and uh, I don't know what to compare. It was back when I lived in Budapest, um, but I can I can give you a joke with with London. Like the the joke was that the Chinese copy a lot. You know, they they create their own version of everything, right? Which is fun, but they they often copy so well that it's just like the original. And, you know, living in London, it it came up like, probably somewhere in China, there is like a perfect replica of London. And someone was joking that maybe they they copied it, but they copied it years ago. So the the prime minister or the, the mayor of London is still the previous one. (laughs) (laughs) You still haven't fucked up some
1: stuff. That's (laughs) the thing. That's the problem with copying. It's slow, right? It doesn't. (laughs) They do a great job at mirroring, but then there's a lag between that, and it's kind of there's an inertia that.
0: But uh, anyway, I have no problem with with China copying anything. But if I understand correctly, so we have the vertical axis with old and new, and the horizontal axis with uh, something like individual, almost a single product, to something scaled. So something that's manufactured, that's right? right?
1: So if you think of uh, economic growth, for instance, um, the zero to one uh, vertical axis is coming up with new shit, mm-hmm. genuinely new things. So efficiency, like doing more with less, genuine increments, and improvements. That's mm-hmm. one area of growth in the world. So that's what you know. That's been the main vector of growth in the 20th century. Uh, versus what we've seen in the last 20 years, maybe since the 80s, which is one-to-end scaling that. So that's when, you know, outsourcing came into it, globalization, all of that has effectively taken existing technology that was developed in the West and then scaling it in the world. So that's been copying effectively. All of that right. contributed to growth uh, nonetheless, but it's a different type of growth. It's not the one that is had been is in line with the projections that we had in the 60s. And therefore, his... Um, argument that this is a, a hidden form of stagnation, because it's not in line with what we believed. I mean, we thought we would be on Mars. We thought that in 2001, it'd be like the space odyssey, right, where you go to Jupiter and so on. And actually, we've actually fallen quite a lot. And if you are, uh, we're actually quite pessimistic, COVID aside, you know, relationship with China, the Chinese themselves are quite pessimistic about their future. Um, maybe, you know, Australia is... Uh, there's the other myth, which is it's kind of the opposite, which is uh, exceptionalism. We believe that regardless of everything that's happened, and we we're kind of blind to the stagnation, and we think we're exceptional, right? In Australia, it will never property enterprises will never go down. Uh, we'll always have growth, which um, I'll get to that, and towards the end is also not a given. So this is effectively called innovation will happen whether we want it or not. Robots will take over the world is the type of thinking. No matter what we do, robots will take over the world. And the problem with that thinking um, is basically that uh, it's a form of kind of a autopilot nihilism because it just assumes that regardless of human agency, the world would just converge to that singularity, what is effectively that endless point of innovation. And the truth is, uh, if you think like that, chances are things don't move at all, because you're just assuming things are going to happen, but you're not actually doing anything about it. It's like, yeah. it's what it's basically the environment that we have today, where, you know, we see a lot of printing of money, you see a lot of high returns, all the asset prices are going up, right? And you just, you're basically in a monetary bubble, uh, property bubble, uh, stock price uh, bubble, and then you're just assuming, yeah, that's actually a reflection that we're going to be better off in the future. But who is actually doing anything different to increase productivity, technological innovation to support this growth? What's actually sitting behind? When on the contrary, right? We have less access to chips. Um, property, uh, building a house is more expensive than before. So all the fundamentals uh, underneath the monetary are actually worse. As we're just delaying uh, realization of that for the moment.
0: I that's really... What, I. I, it really depresses me that we might never have the Jetsons.
1: It is. It sucks, right? Because I really like the the design on those apartments. I Yeah, great. <laughs> those, those flying cars were amazing. So uh, going back to Earth a little bit, I think uh, he was talking about this, this. book was written, I think, um, closer to the, to the years 2000. And... No, it was 2014. It was published first, but it did have some lessons from the first dot-com bubble. Because we've been going through bubbles quite a lot in the last 20 years, right? We had the dot-com bubble, the GFC, um, and then I think you know, um, call it whatever you want. But there's there's definitely some some rotten in Denmark right now. We just uh, we're definitely in a monetary bubble and with QE. So the things that people thought about innovation before were like, oh, you can just make incremental advances and then Uh, you know, that's fine. As long as you stay lean, it's all about being lean in an organization. You always have to look at your competition and be better than your competition. This thinking, this mindset that you're always competing against someone uh, was kind of the the old way of thinking. And then um, this is maybe Silicon Valley biased. You just focus on the right product. You don't care about how you sell it and that's going to work. And what the dot-com bubble later revealed that now is the key to success of some of the... um, the innovation in the world of bits, at least that it, that is happening, is that, uh, and this may be applicable to us as life advice. I would say, you know, it's better to risk being bold than doing something trivial, right? That's and that's something we we kind of struggle a lot, right? ourselves. I I, I personally like I my biggest fear is just doing something trivial <laughs> that doesn't make any difference, doesn't have any impact, right? So I prefer making mistakes, taking a little risk, and then a bad plan is better than no plan. I mean, I agree, all plans. The moment you issue a plan, it's going to be flawed, but at least you've got something going on, something to look forward so,
0: to. So, is this, um, this Peter, or, or in your context, whoever you are talking about, is, is aligned well with the lean startup philosophy, you know, like fail fast, fail a lot or something, that sort of stuff, or you reckon this is a different approach?
1: Well, I think he says all companies must be lean, but uh, which is code for unplanned. Um, He's he's basically uh, questioning the idea that planning is arrogant and inflexible. Um, It's true that you should iterate, right? But uh, you have to be aware that entrepreneurship is kind of an agnostic experimentation, right? Uh, But which is actually, he actually disagrees. I think every single time, he actually believes that having a plan even if it's wrong is better than no plan and just assuming things will eventuate i think that's what he's criticizing Uh, in reality you kind of need a bit of both right but but having a plan something you're aiming towards is really really important even if it's wrong and i gave the example at the beginning the guys when they started paypal were thinking about um, having a a digital currency not necessarily cryptocurrency but definitely an (laughs) internet-based currency that didn't work out but Ultimately, they repivoted into something else, which was uh, online payments, and then they found the use case, which was eBay at the time, which required, had a horrible way, mis- a lot of mistrust, and the parties couldn't really settle their, their payments, and they, they became the intermediary of those transactions, ultimately uh, solving for that, something that eBay themselves couldn't solve for, and they ended up actually being bought by eBay later on for... Many billions of dollars. Anyway, just to finish, kind of the ideas here. Um, his main criticism, and this is what's really contrarian. I think we've been brainwashed in economics. If you studied economics, like like myself, I think. I did. The, the you know the, what they teach us is effectively that the best markets are um, those. What are they called? Um, I think it was non-monopolistic, but they, they did have a term which was uh, the perfect markets, right? The perfect, perfect market. Competition. Yeah, with perfect market. competitions are the ideal market. That's what capitalism brings. Capitalism brings in the end state a situation where no one earns uh, unfair profits or something like that, right? Because if it's an attractive market, you'll always have new entrants that will compete that profit away. Right?
0: Sur- surplus profit. Yeah. So yeah, it's the idea be, that yeah, you, you earn the market rate, right? That's right. Oh.
1: And this basically is the best outcome for, for, uh, for customers, is the oh. ideology. And the, the biggest paradigm shift for me was actually, and this is what I'm struggling in, to be comfortable with, I think is um, that competitive markets actually destroy profits and that the best businesses, if you want to be in a business, tying back to having a secret, you have to be comfortable with being the only person doing it. And effectively having a monopoly over that. And that monopoly, he distinguishes a bit between good monopoly and bad monopoly. So mm-hmm. a bad monopoly um, is kind of like, um, it has a tendency towards corruption. It's kind of regulatory imposed. Think of uh, like Telstra before being privatized. Um, the only teleco company, it's government backed. It's the government effectively. Uh, and you have really shitty service. They don't invest in customers and you have no option. And have no way of doing it versus a good monopoly, Google. So Google, uh, right, it's um, when at least when it first started, right, uh, it was no one else could do it, right? They're definitely doing a much better job than all the other all the other uh, search engines at the time because they're actually algorithm based. Sure. And they actually took up the market away from everyone else through their own merit. Right. And that's a good type of work because they were doing something that they knew and uh, them themselves how to do and uh, no one else. And then, but then uh, you don't
0: think that monopolies are just have the tendency of getting corrupted? Isn't that the point of being against monopolies? That you know, I mean, be, beyond the idea that you know, how do you define monopolies? You know, that's that's another contention. And that's a
1: question that of there. he goes through this book. Do you believe that Google is has has a monopoly on search, but does it have a monopoly on technology? Because it depends what it positions itself at. And that market can be as small or as big as you want. Is, is Google synonymous with the advertising industry? Is Google synonymous with the technology industry? Google doesn't have a, a monopoly on technology, although it's trying to portray itself as the alphabet right, of technology. All technology could be Google. And within that market, it has a very small share. Within advertising, it's acting pretty monopolistic. Um, and that's a very, very interesting nuance that, that you need to, need to tread. But I think The main point is that if you are you have to think as a kind of a business owner if uh, you don't want to be the owner of a company that is part of that um, perfect competition market you will starve you cannot stay in business you need to earn a surplus of profit profit to be worthwhile for you to stay in business so it's actually basically that's wrong it's wrong to believe that you can just kind of earn the market rate because if you that, that is fake. The market rate effectively is that you've got a million people competing for it and, and then actually you're out of business. And it's a bit like l- labor can be sometimes like that, right? So being employed is a bit like that, especially when you're in a global world, globalization. You're highly substitutable, right? So your labor doesn't earn you any salary, any any surplus of, of income because you now you're substituted with someone in, in another market like China or India. And all of a sudden... Um, you know, it's kind of not worthwhile. You, you're actually, you actually...
0: I mean, look, sure, sure. Look, at the economist in me wants to argue with you a lot right now, but the, the honest answer is that, yeah, ideally, we want to earn some profit. Market trade is a profit as well, sure. But, you know, to stay, in, in reality, it's, it's more than that. Sure, I get that.
1: But this market rate is just something fictional; (laughs) doesn't doesn't really exist. It's just all theoretical. In practice, you want to be in a business that makes money. That's all it it means. Yeah. Which is kind of a truth, right? Uh, An axiom. And uh, just just kind of uh, some advice around building companies, which uh, neither of us have any experience with, but it's good to think about. Uh, (laughs) The the equivalent of the question that I asked you at the beginning about what is a truth that very few people agree with you on. Uh, fuck-around time, uh, is the contrarian version of that for the business, starting a business is, what valuable company is no one building? <laughs> I'm what not going to ask you. Do you want to answer that question? What
0: was that? What
1: valuable a, a company, company? that A company that offers fuck-around time <laughs> would be basically the, the business idea. Ooh.
0: That's a hard one because I feel like like my approach to fuck around time is, is psychological, right? It's the idea that you shouldn't feel bad for not being able to achieve anything. But like how would I do a business around it? That's a good question. I guess meditation apps would be like a business idea. We have meditation apps that exist already. I can't think of anything else at the moment.
1: Well, I think, you know, definitely doing a podcast is, is, um, a shitty idea according to this framework, right? Because if you want to create and capture, basically there are two, two elements, creating value and capturing value. So mm-hmm. he gives this example of Albert Einstein, right? He came up with a relatively uh, theory, right? That's amazing uh, innovation in yeah. itself. And it was highly lucrative. It created uh, nuclear energy, right? It created um, uh, nuclear submarines, whatever. Uh, Im- immensely valuable in terms of uh, technological output and GDP output. But did Einstein actually capture any value of that? So that's where the idea of monopoly comes into play. It's not enough to have a great idea that unlocks a lot of value. You have to be able to capture some of that. And if you want to do that, you have to build a differentiated type of business, not a undifferentiated commodity business, such as podcasting in today's world.
0: Well, it sounds like to me that we need to use this book to gain a monopoly over podcasting. We we'll just have to, you know, do, maybe have to copy everyone else's podcast. We do the, the China method, and mm. you know, next week we start to talk about true crime, and then we go into I don't know, fashion.
1: I think <laughs> absolutely. I think the idea exactly is that is that you don't want to aim so big, right? If Google would have gone for saying we are the world's technology company, it would have never won. If we would have gone and said we are the world uh, world's uh, advertising company they would have never won. What they actually did is they got really good in one specific niche, and that's where they won, and then they scaled out of that. And sure. um, so he uses this um, great, uh, great um, classic um, analogy to Anna Karenina, which is, as you remember, the beginning of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy is um, all, uh, all happy families uh, uh, are kind of the same. Uh, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. Mm-hmm. And um, I never read
0: it, so uh, but but I believe you. It, it, it sounds good.
1: Right. So you kind of understand that the, there's a there's a kind of a archetypal formula to families. Well, and this is the opposite with building companies. All unhappy companies are the same. They're all the commodity and commoditized ones. All the happy companies are all different. <laughs> you need to have something different if you want to be happy sure. as a company that no one else yeah. has.
0: You need to be competitive in your own way, right? It's In a way, you have to monopolize your advantage. And Yeah, no but it,
1: you have to almost be so good that you don't think of competition. You're in your own league of your own. And if you're just doing incremental stuff on someone else's, it'll never work. I think there was another rule of thumb or heuristics is that whatever you do has to be 10 times as good as the, anyone else if you really want to succeed as a startup, right? So this, this podcast needs to be 10 times as good at talking about classics than someone else which will never be but it's probably 10 times as good as fucking around about classics which oh, probably no one
0: does. this podcast is already 15 times better than any <laughs> other podcast
1: No, but you, you get the idea that's kind of breakthrough uh innovation uh and then you know i've already talked about the idea that you know um There's kind of this ideology with competition. So I think the two extremes that he brings in, I'm I'm walking you through the whole book right now because I've got, it's all notes. I hope you don't mind. I can go a bit faster, but... um,
0: Sure, I'm I'm just thinking that we probably want to wrap up in a few minutes. So I guess maybe... Ah. Highlight any important points that you want to do. Okay, or, I'll go
1: real quick. Go yeah, Give me five five minutes. So one thing I like is about this ideology of competition that I was mentioning before, because I think the extreme of that is Marx. He, he, he parallels Marx to Shakespeare, right? In the, the world of Marx, people fight because, um, you know, they're different. So the proletariat fights the bourgeoisie because they have completely different ideas and goals. Um, you know, it's kind of randomly generated by Marx. And so the greater the differences, is, the greater the conflict. Uh, sure. In the world of Shakespeare, by contrast, all combatants are pretty much the same. And, uh, you know, then if you have Romeo and Juliet with two households, both alike in dignity, the houses are alike, but they hate each other because they're alike. So when they grow, um, their feud escalates effectively as well. And um, to the point where they actually forget about why they were fighting in the first place. So that's the biggest problem with competition is actually the world. Yeah,
0: but- Shakespeare. You see the problem with Romeo and Juliet is that they are Italians.
1: <laughs> Which <laughs> has some of the, the craziest feuds. feuds.
0: Yeah, no, I'm just I'm just kidding. I love Italians. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough.
1: Okay. There's a lot of things that I kind of like about these books. He's kind of used, I love some of the frameworks. The um, he's kind of framing things into another matrix. He likes matrixes. One is kind of the optimistic, pessimistic. Uh, vertical axis, and the other one is the relationship to complexity and uncertainty. Uh, whether you feel kind of confident about things versus you find things to be really chaotic, definite versus indefinite. So the world of uh, the US in the 50s and 60s, the one we see in the old Hollywood, that's you know with manufacturing thing growth, double digit growth, that's the optimistic but kind of certain world. The U.S. of today is a lot more still optimistic. People still believe, or the Australia of today, people still believe in the future, but they're aware there's a high uncertainty with regards to it. And I think it's contrasting that with two other worlds, which I actually really like and agree with, at least one is the China of the present, which is there's a lot of concrete things happening. There's a lot of people like, it's a top-down system, right? It's all about order. However, people are very pessimistic. They've got a strong risk aversion. I think they know shit can blow up at any moment Evergrande blows up systemic risk the whole house of cards drops right it's enough not to have the same six percent growth year on year for things to fuck up versus um, the other the last uh, kind of quadrant is uh, a world full of chaos where you're also pessimistic which is europe actually europe today you know is kind of not feeling it they don't really know where it's going uh, they realize there's a lot of complexity, they don't have the growth story or direction that China has, it's just a shit show, right?
0: To be uh, fair, to be fair, if you read European literature, you realize that they never really know where it's going. They're always a bit just depressed.
1: <laughs> so I think it basically goes down, okay, so that, that's another framework for understanding kind of how the world, again, uh, see, sees things. Obviously, he's a big fan of uh, living within that quadrant of um, indefinite complexity, but optimism, right? That's where we want to live in. That's where it's livable, right? I I think that's the reason why. That's that's, that's what I like, effectively. And in order to do that, you have to be comfortable uh, with kind of secrets and developing your own secrets, your own individual ideas about things, ultimately. He is a libertarian, after all. So the the, the way you, you solve problems according to Thiel, is through your own individual resources and the secrets that you have that no one else has. So the question is, what do you do with a secret? Do you tell people? Who do you tell? Do you tell your closest people, your your co-founders? Do you tell everybody? Uh, and then you risk being like Einstein, right? Uh, amazing genius that doesn't capture any value from the, the brilliance of his mind. So, so the secrets are very, very important. I'm just skimming uh, skipping through. I think then the, the I think there's a great the, the the book in the second part has a great um, case study on clean tech actually clean tech so yeah and why clean tech failed in the 2000s so there was a big clean, clean tech funding bubble everybody thought you know we, we could develop um, so solar would be cheaper than oil and all that and it's okay. going to take over the world and, and then in the end it all everything um, everything uh, folded all these companies went bankrupt and they all accused the chinese for copying the american technology at lower costs and all the plus you know the solar panels and so on no one with, made any no with, one any money made any money from clean
0: tech. yeah with, with with that um not so much clean tech But you we, we were talking about like him being libertarian and talking about solving issues coming from you like thus in, in the same time i feel like there's a con- contradiction of him talking about economies and how country one versus country two, USA, China, Australia, whatever have developed. Cause that's all a very collective approach to things. While you know, a lot of the innovation is individual. Like where does he stand on that? Like, does he see a country's economy as a sum of individuals or I guess synergies and all that other side aside? Or does he see as more like a collective that we have to work together
1: to move forward? Yeah, so I definitely think he's uh, very much kind of on the left, on the right of that. He, as a libertarian, he believes in individual agency. So um, the economy is built bottom up by individual choices, people uh, that that allocate resources. It's not the state, it's not the government. Uh, There will always be uh, an inferior way of allocating resources. It's not going to be the humanistic way. It's anything but ultimately totalitarian. So he's very much for individual freedom of, of, sure. of that. And he, that's why I think he's still banking on the power, the ability of the U.S. and the West, you know, or the sure. U.S., U.K., uh, Australia, Canada, uh, which are kind of libertarian capitalist societies in, in coming up with the answers that will take the developed world, not the developing world, on that axis, the vertical axis from zero to one. Basically, that's and the answer. So, so
0: that that's his view on the future that you know the, I guess the individualistic, capitalistic societies will still be able to kick some ball. Uh,
1: I think he's optimistic but then he's optimistic with a sense of caution if anything Mm. he's trying to be more pessimistic just to be provocative so Mm. you can either believe two things one is stagnation the other one is as i mentioned at the beginning singularity things will just evolve towards this innovation whether we do anything or not so he's cautioning against both if you we may be in an era of stagnation today um and We might be in a more—we might think that things are going too good, and in fact, as you can see, things are not going very well. So if you look at people's um, inequality, is effectively a symptom, not necessarily of um, you know the rich taking more and more, but it's effectively uh, a symptom of the majority of population not um, not capturing any of the value they create. Um, and society not creating enough value ultimately for most of people in, uh, in the economy to the point where the salaries adjusted for inflation have not grown uh, in the Western world, you know, compared to the, the kind of the middle of the century or the, the before the 70s, the, the oil shocks, especially when you adjust for dual household incomes. Effectively, now you have the same household income or, you know, adjusted for inflation, but two people are working instead of one. That's a huge, that was a huge, um, so what for me, right? Where basically there's not enough innovation in, in Western societies to, um, to basically, uh, yeah to, to even be described as, as a success story from a, from a growth perspective. The other element is uh, to say, you know, we're going to be taken over by robots. That we're all my, going towards the singularity. There's nothing we can do about it. Let's just uh, put our hands behind our, uh, our head and just kind of lay back a little bit and just, as, here we go. We're going towards the... Uh, robots are taking over. It's going to be great. Or they might kill us. And the, the idea that they were going to kill us is, comes from this deep fear that we are completely incompetent as human beings. And we know it. it's... It's be stagnation theory, basically. Shit, we're actually not very good at anything. There's too much knowledge in the world anyway to be understood by one single person. Uh, division of labor has made each and one of us kind of replaceable and incompetent in our own way. And... We're not gonna, sure. and it's very deeply anti-humanistic as a as a mindset, and I I relate to that. that being to, to
0: be fair, to be fair, what else would you do against the robots? Ah, oh, they are coming to take it over. I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to just lay down,
1: and just relax. <laughs> no, I think the. Okay, I was going to go through what makes a good company, but uh, to answer that question, and I'll go to that in a second and close, the the, the answer to us, to us that I think his recommendation that I really like, it's not the final answer, but I, I like it as a proposal, is that we should really believe in a future of more of a symbiotic between man and machine. Let's not forget that robots are ultimately tools that we create for our benefit, and mm-hmm. there's something... Uh, irreplaceable about being human, that a, a robot will never, never be able to generate, not in a hundred years. That's actually the truth. No matter what people with uh, Cassandra complexes uh, believe about the end of the world and uh, the robot apocalypse, apocalypse like Elon Musk, there's just. Uh, there's something about human huma- humanity and agency and that that the robots will never be able to to have and the best outcomes from growth perspective for our own well-being is that com- amazing combination between the the one to n computational power of of robots um, at the moment we're doing very well in terms of bits and data uh, data servers but maybe apply to the world of atoms as well manufacturing at scale or and so on or nuclear energy at scale that's safe that combination of that axis and the axis of zero to one, which is intrinsically uh, the ability of humans to create something out of nothing.
0: I like that the book is titled zero to one and robots are all binary, right? It's all zeros and ones. So robots must read it and be like, oh my God, this is great.
1: Yeah. So if I were to close, I think if you're looking for kind of like uh, the cheat sheet of this book, it's coming at page 153, which is there are seven questions we need to ask ourselves. I need to ask myself about doing it when I, when I try to do anything worthwhile, which is number one, the engineering question is, are you actually able to create something new, completely new instead of just incremental improvement?
0: Yeah.
1: Number two is timing if you want to have a successful enterprise of any sort, is now the right time to start that particular thing? Or are you kind of late in the adoption cycle? And he gives this great uh, anecdote in a, one of his speeches. is um, the, All the Harvard MBAs, which are extremely extroverted but have no absolutely no idea what to do with their lives, timed the end of the dot-com bubble perfectly when it came to employment, and they just joined all those dot-com bubble, uh, companies in 2001 when all of them imploded. So there's, there's a whole class of people that are just... Following the trend, following the crypto trend, following the whatever shit is, is in in fashion. And it's a question about timing. And you kind of have to have your own beliefs about when things are, uh, are have, have arrived at their time, so to speak. The third question is the monopoly question. Um, are you starting with a big share of a small market was the idea. Google owning a very, very small market, but owning it 100% and not spreading its effort endlessly number 4 is people question now i haven't really talked about it so much now but there's a whole uh, section and i truly believe that you know are you partnered with the right people in your team why are people doing it what what are the what is the incentive structure you know are people motivated by uh, kind of a, a flat salary or is it equity and what does equity really mean mm-hmm. right? that part of the business that that grows with you and your own efforts very important you know you and me were If anything, you know, this is trivial effort, but if not, we are co-founders and equal equity partners. Classic amateurs. Classic amateurs, Inc. (laughs) (laughs) Number five. That's (laughs) Monopoly. It's got to write, Go it write it. The distribution question and a lot of people, I guess this applies a lot to techie people that are kind of nerdy. They think that engineering is everything. A lot of it is actually distribution and sales because it's, one thing is creating an amazing, even if it's an amazing conversation, but the other thing is other people knowing about it. So where do you actually distribute your product? Number six is the durability question. And Peter Thiel is actually a chess master. So he always thinks in not who does the first move, who has the first mover advantage, but who has the last mover advantage? Who is the one giving the chess made? So is your market position going to be defendable 10, 20 years from now? A lot of the value, and you know this because you're, um, you've got the finance background, when you value a company, you do a discount cash flow model. Cash flow. Yeah, 80% of the value is in that terminal value, right? That's how you can fuck around and just... Uh, give whatever value you want to your, your your company, right? Because it's true, that's that's where most of the value is. It's in the exit.
0: That's how that's how they calculate the net worth of celebrities as well.
1: Yeah. How they exit. Yeah. You exit at twenty-seven like uh, Amy Winehouse and here.
0: Oh I, I <laughs> don't know about I, I don't I don't I don't think that was a financial decision.
1: And number seven is the secret question. Have you identified that unique opportunity that others just don't see? Fuck around Um, time. Fuck around time. There you go.
0: That's it. Well, so this is our fuck around time podcast. Maybe we should have renamed it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess we should go through this and then build our the only, the best and only podcast that ever exists. Even if we need to ask the robots to take over every other podcast.
1: The only classic podcast that is done by amateurs during their fuck around time. There you go. There you go.
0: Monopoly. Let's see if anyone else is interested. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. This is great. Any Thanks. any final words? That's it. Enjoyed it.
1: All recommend right. The book, Thanks.
0: Zero to One, baby. Sounds brilliant. Zero to One by Peter Thiel.